0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charent, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is David Frum, staff writer for The Atlantic and author, most recently, of Trumpocalypse, which is not easy to say. Uh, so welcome, one and all. Um, Bill Galston is currently having a little bit of a computer glitch, so he will join us, uh, we hope, in just a few minutes, but we're going to get rolling. Much to discuss. This week was the funeral for Tyree Nichols. Um And his beating death at the hands of five police officers in Memphis has ignited another conversation in this country about what to do about excessive police violence. And it is obviously a depressing subject, the fact that it keeps happening. But I thought we would take the plunge and hopefully maybe begin to propose some things that are not conventional. David Frum, I'm going to start with you. The usual policy recommendation that you hear is that we pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which does have some good features to it. What do you make of this?
1: I don't want to judge what happened in this terrible incident. There are facts still out there that will gradually accumulate, and I don't want to be hasty about any of this. But I would stress that. A message that people need to take away is: America does not need less policing. We've been through a serious surge of crime, really beginning since 2014, but especially intensely since 2020, and that's joined to issues of order and livability in great cities on the major coasts. The last thing anybody would need at this point is a change in approach to policing that withdraws police, that makes cities more dangerous, that discourages families with children from feeling at home in parks uh, and public places. And I worry that in our determination to achieve justice quickly and immediately, we may do some very serious damage to very important considerations.
0: So, Damon, one of the really smart analyses that I saw this week was from Noah Smith, who's been on this podcast a number of times, who writes the Substack No Opinion, where he points out that when it comes to training police we lag far behind other comparable nations. So he notes that in Australia, recruits get 3,500 hours of training. In Germany, they undergo more than 4,000 hours. Yet here, the average is only about 600, which is less than is required to become a cosmetologist or a plumber in uh, most states in the Union.
2: Yeah, that's an amazing and pretty outrageous (laughs) bit of information there. I saw that this week. I will say this was truly, as David said, a horrific event. But if there is anything good to come out of it, I even hesitate to put it like that because it could be misconstrued. And I'm not intending in any way to try to say we need to get something good out of something that is simply intrinsically bad. But It is the case that in these periodic soul-searching exercises that we go through as Americans, they so often end up skewed by our racial pathologies in this country. And one thing about this incident that I think is somewhat fortunate is that although the victim was a black man, the perpetrators, the cops who did what they did in that video— We're also Black, and that is only good in the sense that it somewhat neutralizes the issue of race in this incident. And I know some on the left are insisting that isn't true. No, this is still white supremacy. And I know those arguments, and I'm not persuaded by them, at least not beyond kind of marginal ways. But it's important, I think, because the real problem is that we have a policing problem, that policing is not done particularly well in this country. Part of it is the issue that you put on the table, Mona, from Noah Smith's piece about the simple number of hours that police officers are required to go through for training. It has to do with The kind of education level of people who self-select to be police officers, the psychological profile for people who self-select to be police officers, too often are people who kind of have issues with aggression and wanting to impose their will on chaotic situations in ways that often get out of hand. They're not particularly well-trained at de-escalation in very high-stress, dangerous situations. And I don't want to downplay how dangerous policing can be, especially in a country like ours that is awash in deadly firepower. So as you can just tell from that kind of litany I just went through, we have a problem, and it is a big, complicated one. And so... I think that at least we don't have to say that race has nothing to do with these incidences, that racism of cops can certainly be an issue in many, many cases. But that is, I think, a pretty large subset, but still a subset of the bigger problem, which is the policing problem. And I think the statistic you cited at the top is, I think, maybe a better entry point for the fact that we live in a society in which we too often endure interactions with the police that turn violent and well too often quite deadly.
0: Linda, Damon mentioned this, and you can't talk about our policing problem without recognizing that we are not comparable to other advanced industrialized countries in the level of violent crime that we have. Policing in our country is very dangerous because the American people are very prone to crime. And they are heavily armed, as Damon also mentioned. And so it's important to acknowledge that. But at the same time, an aspect of this that doesn't perhaps get enough attention, I'm curious whether you have views on it since you are an old union person, but the police unions have a tremendous amount of power. And they have been able to shield bad officers from accountability by the collective bargaining contracts that they have been able to extract from municipalities and communities across the country, including, you know, Memphis, where this latest atrocity happened. The officers involved were disciplined in the past, you know, so you have views on uh, on the role of unions here. Well,
3: I do, and I'm happy to address that. But I also want to address the question of race, because I do think it's important First, in terms of the union, there's no question that municipal public employee unions, whether you're talking about firefighters or police officers or, frankly, sanitation workers, have a stranglehold in a lot of communities. And it's one of the reasons why at least some early uh, labor uh, leaders oppose the idea of having unions for government workers because essentially the government workers are bargaining with people that they help elect. Exactly. And so it's not mm-hmm. the normal relationship between an employer and employee. And so that's a problem. And there are all sorts of rules in all sorts of places. I haven't looked exactly at Memphis, but certainly this is a problem. I don't think it is the problem here. And I do want to go back to the subject of race because there is at least a call on the left to say, well, these black officers were acting on racial attitudes. I think that may be true, but it's true for the reason that you talked about a moment ago, which is we are an incredibly violent people we Americans. And when you look at crime statistics, Blacks are far more likely to be involved in criminal activity and particularly violent criminal activity. And so these police officers, when they see a young Black man, may in fact react very differently than they would have if they had seen a Black woman or if they had seen a white or perhaps even a Latino. So I think that is something we have to deal with. But the big problem, it seems to me, is that we cannot recruit enough police right now. Every single major city in America is suffering from a police shortage. And what ends up happening when they have to fill these jobs is that they take people who they probably should not take. And you talked earlier and David talked earlier about the question of training and the question of the kinds of personalities that may be attracted to being police officers. I think we don't do a very good job in weeding out people who have problems with violence. And particularly if police departments are short of recruits, they're going to have to dig deeper in order to find people willing to take on the dangerous job. And sometimes that means bringing in people who, frankly, have no business being police. And then we shortchange them on training. So it is a combination of a lot of factors. This is not a problem that has a simple, one-size-fits-all solution. And certainly, the George Floyd Policing Act, I mean, there may be some valuable things in it, but a lot of it would have no impact on all of the various complex underlying problems that lead to
0: what we saw. You know, there's been commentary that this is just another form of white supremacy, and a lot of people scoff and roll their eyes, say, oh, really? So it's white supremacy when white officers do it, and it's white supremacy when Black officers do it? Oh, really? And yet, I have to say that, the history of white supremacy in this country is so woven into people's psyches and histories that it sometimes can strangely, I know this is going to seem odd to some people, but it can play a role. So here's what struck me. There's a piece in the Atlantic this week by Thomas Chatterton Williams about this very matter of is it white supremacy and he quoted a book by James Baldwin, The Evidence of Things Not Seen. Here's the quotation. We used to say, if you must call a policeman, for we hardly ever did, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that, though he was black, he was not black like you. Which really caused a Chill down my spine. I mean, there might be truth in that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, one way or the other about these particular officers, but boy, it's hard to tease these things apart psychologically. In any event, David, there have been other fixes that I have to confess I had hope might help. One was body cameras. Has this episode destroyed the argument that body cameras or any sort of technical fix is going to be our salvation?
1: No, body cameras help because you know about things that you didn't know about before. Just a follow-on on that James Baldwin quote, powerful as it is, that there are explanations of things that are intellectually, historically, morally important, and then there are explanations that are politically actionable. And I think one of the things that conservatives can bring to this table to help advance a discussion is you don't have to say that these deep structural causes are untrue or false or malicious, to say they're not very helpful because we don't have another country to have a different history. You can't create a new society and a new culture. This is where you start. The goal is to have less crime and less police abuse next year. So what are we going to do between now and next year to make things better? And the more minute and less deep the solution is the more likely it is to be something that actually can be put into effect and can make a difference. Um, so body cameras, you know, they're not the answer to everything. They help. So it would, by the way, disarming the society. I grew up in Toronto. Toronto has been having a tough year of all kinds of strange and unprecedented violence on its uh, transit system. Some of it extremely upsetting. A homeless man was attacked and kicked to death by a gang of teenage girls, that kind of thing. And yet, the whole vast city of Toronto, one of the great cities of North America, is having about the same number of homicides that it had 20 years ago. In 2022, I think there were 67, of which 30 were inflicted by gun. So if you could just assure the police that the people they're stopping don't have a gun in the glove compartment, start with yep. that. It's highly unlikely. this. If they're reaching for the glove compartment, it's highly unlikely they're going to find a gun there. If you could assure the police of that. Now, that's a big project, too, but it's not as big as rewiring the history of American culture. <laughs>
0: right, right. although it's pretty close, David, <laughs> it's pretty close, because dealing with the gun issue uh, does activate the sort of primitive portions of a lot of Americans' brains that say, you know, that this is a more sacred right than free speech. So that's a problem. All right. I'm sorry to report that our colleague, Bill Galston, still seems to be having trouble with his computer. So we're going to have to soldier on without him. And we're going to turn for our next topic to the unfolding GOP presidential race. The Bulwark had a poll out this week that was done in cooperation with WIT Ayers, showing that Republican primary voters are ready to move away from Donald Trump. And these are people who voted for Trump twice, the people in the poll, but in a head-to-head matchup with uh, Ron DeSantis, DeSantis uh, came out ahead. And uh, majorities of them do not think that Trump is the best candidate for the Republican Party to nominate in 2024. Damon Linker, does this give you comfort? I'm afraid not.
2: I mean, it is another data point, and I'm happy to have it. There have been a few polls over the last month that seem to be showing DeSantis rather comfortably ahead of Trump, and that's a good sign. The reason why it doesn't give me tons of comfort is that I feel like there are good reasons to think that Trump is probably at a low ebb right now. He sort of jumped right in in mid-November just after the midterm elections and announced that he was running and then kind of slunk right back to Mar-a-Lago and uh, hasn't gone out much. He goes golfing. He has some neo-Nazis over for dinner. He tweets or (laughs) does his truth social posts, whatever they're called. And not much else. So that's created a real vacuum in which people like, well, Ron DeSantis have jumped in and he's being very shrewd. He's giving the right wing media ecosystem Tons of good news bites about things that he's doing to prosecute the culture war down there in Florida, which leads them to swoon. And uh, there are already lots and lots of writers on conservative websites and magazines who already love DeSantis. But yet he's also not declared yet that he's running and he's not taking the bait and hitting Trump back. He sort of floats above it all and does his thing. So that's a, a situation that's perfectly designed to raise DeSantis up and have Trump slowly sink. If Trump does actually start doing things like, you know, campaigning, <laughs> holding rallies, finds out a way to get out of his deal with Truth Social so that he can tweet again, ends up back at the center of the news cycle. I think a lot of those wavering Republicans, not the 28 to 30 percent who basically would follow him to the grave, but the ones who have flipped over to DeSantis in the last six months, some of them will be reminded of why they loved him again and why they loved him in the first place. And will probably come back. I suspect that by the time we get deeper into this year, the polls will be much more neck and neck. Now, one thing I would add to that is New Hampshire. If you look at the polls in New Hampshire over the last year and a half, you see a very clear story of Trump 28 points ahead to, at present, the most recent poll a couple of weeks ago, had DeSantis ahead by 12. That's a huge flip. Now, if DeSantis can hold on to that and even build on it and really just blow New Hampshire out of the water a year from now, that could be the kind of event that really uh, changes any and all narratives about how this is going to go. But of course, you know, we have to also keep in mind there are other people waiting in the wings who, you know, maybe will be parts of the questions you'll ask other panelists in a moment. You know, the field is going to get at least somewhat more crowded than it appears it is now with Trump, the declared candidate, and DeSantis, the presumptive next person to join. But, you know, there are other people jumping in. And when that happens, suddenly things get a lot messier. So we shall see. My general take, though, is that I wouldn't count Trump out yet, however nice it is to hear that he seems to be struggling at this early point.
0: Linda, the downside of that poll, I suppose from the point of view of a Republican who wants to win the White House in 2024, was this, that while Trump is losing altitude with primary voters as a first choice, he has a solid 28-30% to of the party that will uh, stay with him no matter what, and I mean even if he runs as a third-party candidate. Um, polls at this point, I think are pretty irrelevant.
3: I don't think they tell us very much. I do think that Trump is appearing to be a very different candidate this time around than he was in 2015 when he announced. I mean, he doesn't have the energy. He doesn't have the cachet that he had where he was, you know, a TV guy and everybody knew his name and he would say these outrageous things that many people thought but were afraid to say. And he managed to get them out and it didn't kill him. He managed to still win the nomination and ultimately the presidency. But he seems very diminished right now. And so I think that is the bigger hope for me is that he really doesn't have what he had in 2015. And the party itself has also changed quite dramatically. Obviously, there are people like me who would like to be able to support a Republican at some point in the future, but it's not going to be any Republican who is a MAGA Republican. That's not going to happen for some of us, but we're not still you know entirely comfortable with the democrats or even with president biden in total so you know i think um we all want to come up with what's going to happen next year i mean we're only a year away from new hampshire but if we've learned anything and certainly i'm the oldest person on the panel today since bill hasn't been able to join us <laughs> and i can tell you going back all the many years that i've been involved in politics that a
0: year out, it is impossible to know what's going to happen. David, when Nikki Haley told Donald Trump that she was going to prepare her presidential announcement, he welcomed her in, basically, instead of flinging insults her way, because I can't say for sure, I don't read his mind, but I can surmise that that's because he's probably thinking, along with many analysts, that a crowded field is good for him that it can work for him the way it did in 2015, 2016. But a lot has changed since then. What what do you um, what do you make of that? You
1: know, I think your reading of that particular decision is right. I'll lay a card on the table here. Ron DeSantis has a very unpleasing affect and many people are understandably off put by him. But however you intend to vote in November of twenty twenty four, it is a better thing for the country and for the Republican Party if Ron DeSantis cleans Donald Trump's clock. And the more cleanly he beats Donald Trump, the more decisively, the better for America, the better for the Republican Party, the better for everybody. So I start from there, but I do not believe that he is as formidable as all those people giving him all that money think. So Ron DeSantis has a staff of people whose team spent all day listening to right wing podcasts, taking part in right-wing message boards, watching Fox News, and getting really, really excited about everything that is chattering about the super highly online, he announced that he was going to end the sales tax on gas stoves in the state of Florida. Gas stoves, they're the new pickup truck. They're the new country and Western boot. They're the sign of every man against those snooty East Coast elites. So I got curious, what does it mean if you end the sales tax on gas stoves in the state of Florida? Well, it turns out when you look, there's data on this of all the 50 states Florida ties for last, along with Maine, in the percentage of of Floridians who use gas for cooking. 8% of Florida homes use gas for cooking. (laughs) But you know where they do use gas for cooking in Florida? In those string of super expensive condominium towers overlooking the ocean of Miami Beach. All of which, and I went and looked this up all of the fanciest towers on that stretch all use gas stoves. So what he's done, and given the cost of the gas stoves, he's probably, to, to the extent this is meaningful, if you are buying a new condo in Florida, he's probably saved you hundred or 200 bucks on your 8 million to 12 million dollar purchase. Okay. <laughs> but why is that important? It's important because I think the great danger for DeSantis is that he turns out to be Jeb Bush with a nasty expression on his face. That everything that Donald Trump figured out in 2015, which is the base of the party does not like the economic message it's been getting. DeSantis says, well, what if I joined that to a lot of culture war stuff? Would you forgive my economic message then? But when you're running against Donald Trump, the problem is, You will never be able to equal Donald Trump on the crazy culture war stuff you come up with. And the difference between the two campaigns is going to end up being that Donald Trump will say, never, ever cut social security, and DeSantis will keep mum. And this is going to come to a head because the Republicans are on their way to a giant battle in Congress over spending cuts to be declared later. And I am confident when that begins to pull badly, as it will, Donald Trump is going to betray them. And that that is going to be the way he distinguishes himself from the other kind of Republican. And DeSantis won't be able to emulate.
0: The history of presidential politics is littered with candidates who seemed incredibly strong. You mentioned Jeb Bush and Scott Walker is another, you know, who seemed really strong and then John Connolly, Linda Chavez, you I would do. remember that. Where he was the hot thing for a while. Anyway, these people seemed incredibly strong, and then they just wilted under the pressure of the campaign. And so we really don't know. I mean, I do agree with David that it would be very good for the country if DeSantis could soundly defeat Trump fair and square in a Republican primary. Uh, i not saying what, that I would vote for him, but I do think it would be good for the country The problem is that everybody in the Republican Party seems to have put all their chips on DeSantis. I mean, the other candidates are having a really tough time, with the exception of Tim Scott. They're all having trouble raising money. Again, it's early days, but still, they're trying to hold out, I think, for DeSantis. And, you know, when the fate of the Republic rests on you, it's a little worrying because DeSantis, as David said, has a a very sour personality. He's angry all the time. He doesn't have any humor. He doesn't have any happy warrior in him. I don't know, but it just seems that there's a lot riding on this. And I wonder about the um, calculations of the others, like Larry Hogan and Asa Hutchinson, who are expecting a big fight between Trump and DeSantis, and that they will then be able to stroll in and be the adult in the room, as one of them put it. Damon, what do you think about that possible scenario that Trump and DeSantis will destroy each other and it'll open the field for someone else?
2: Oh, that I think is a complete fantasy. I think Larry Hogan isn't Mm going to get above mm -hmm. 2%. He's a kind of Republican. He's basically a 21st century version of a Rockefeller Republican. And in the right kind of heavily blue state, that kind of guy can actually still win a contest and become governor. But not in a Republican primary these days. I think that's ridiculous. And frankly, Larry Hogan is so liberal for a Republican. I don't think he would have had a shot 20 years ago. Liz Cheney could have had a shot 10 years ago, but she now can't because she came out so strongly against Trump. So, I mean, at least that's a confession of how I view the Republican Party these days. But one additional little point I wanted to make in response to David's, I think, healthy skepticism about DeSantis, We talked last week on the podcast about the African American Studies AP exam in Florida and how DeSantis came out and singled out especially the final section of this as as being a kind of indoctrination into critical race theory and so forth. We found out a couple days ago that the college board has actually backed down and is changing this final section. They're getting rid of some of that stuff, making it optional, including black conservatives on the test. It's it's in the class, it's a it's a it appears. Now I, I'm sure this was something that was being entertained previous to DeSantis' announcement a week or so ago because this kind of thing never happens that instantly. But the timing of it has the effect of looking as if they just folded to his attack. And conservatives online are just eating this up. They're like, look, this shows that what we need is just power. Give us power and the willingness to fight. And we can do this culture war thing. We can actually win this culture war. I think that's partly delusional, but it's that kind of thing that leads me to wonder, not in the general election necessarily, but in the primaries, if he can keep up these kind of small boiling battles in Florida with issues as they come up, and they kind of get amplified by the right-wing media ecosystem. And he can then point in debates at like, okay, Trump, you're great at hurling insults, but you know what? I'm actually getting stuff done. What did you do in four years? Give me your list of accomplishments on the culture war beyond appointing judges. And that is, uh, I think, a path, maybe a narrow one, that could still lead him to to do quite well. So see, now I've undermined my earlier contention that Trump actually will come back. I of course don't know, <laughs> but I do think that the whole AP African American Studies saga does kind of make my eyebrow rise up and say, huh, like he actually he, he actually could maybe keep doing this and
0: get a lot of love from the base. So, Damon, I think that all those online enthusiasts got it wrong. This is not a victory for Ron DeSantis. It was a victory for Beg to Differ. They were listening, (laughs) the AP people, and they heard Linda Chavez explain (laughs) that everything was fine until they got to that last section, which they really needed to cut back on. And, you know, we get results. So...
2: I like to believe that, and especially the fact that I was the weakest in criticizing it. And so, of course, everything went the other way. So that's the way but, it
3: goes. But, Mona, yeah, if I could interject, you know what really killed it? was that they tried this curriculum in various places and they found that the students found people like Derrick Bell and Crenshaw and all of these critical race theorists utterly boring (laughs) and incomprehensible. They really (sighs) liked reading some of the original documents in the early section. They liked reading people like Frederick Douglass. Frederick
0: Douglass, who would have known? Yeah.
3: yeah. So, (laughs) you know, so it, it was, I think you're both right that this was not necessarily a victory for Ron DeSantis. I think it was a victory for teaching African-American history.
1: Frederick Douglass wrote one of the best-selling books of 19th century America, and he didn't write it for tenure. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe it's a lesson of when people are writing for the tenure committee, right. that bread don't stay fresh. Right. You know, I cannot resist
0: reminding (laughs) our listeners and us about one of Donald Trump's great moments in his presidency when he praised Frederick Douglass, not realizing that the man had been dead for 125 years or something like that. So a lot of people are, you know, giving him a lot of credit. He's doing great work. Let us now look at the state of the Democratic Party, which remains the majority party in the country, kind of, sort of but only by a thread. And there was a really interesting piece by uh, Tom Edsel in uh, the New York Times this week that contained contributions from our own Bill Galston and others about the nature of the Democrats' coalition. It was very interesting because while the Republicans that we've been discussing are pretty monochromatic and are very similar in their outlook, The Democrats are a coalition party, Damon makes this point a lot, that, you know, span many different parts of the country and many different groups. So one of the things that they were pointing out is that the white liberals in the party have become so much more liberal over the last 20 to 30 years than the Hispanic or Black Democrats are, and that this is causing a certain amount of stress within the party. Linda, this is an area you've paid a lot of attention to. Here's a stat. This is from The Third Way. Although the percentage of Democrats calling themselves liberal has grown over the past three decades, it still remains true that only half of self-described party members identify that way. And yet, If you read the papers, if you go by what's online and so forth, you would think that 99% of the Democratic Party was woke. Absolutely. And, you know, what is
3: not a surprise to me or anybody who's been around a long time or has studied this issue very deeply is that Blacks and Latinos are a lot more conservative on a lot of issues than certainly, you know, the Upper West Side white liberal is. And so, It was not a surprise that it was Blacks who essentially nominated Joe Biden, and one of the reasons they picked him is that he was more moderate. They're actually very practical. They want to win elections. And I think they knew that he had a better chance of winning than Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or any of the far-left candidates. But I also think some are. Interested in the programs of a Bernie Sanders and an Elizabeth Warren, but many of them are not. They're basically working class people who are strivers. They want their children to have better lives than they've had, to have struggle less. They believe in hard work. They don't believe in government handouts. They want to feel like they've made it on their own, even on issues like affirmative action, if you look at data on that issue you'll find that Blacks do not believe that they should be given unfair advantage just on the basis of their race. They are not in favor of many of the kinds of programs that we have in place now. So it's not surprising to me. And the party has always been a coalition. I mean, I was a member of the Democratic Party. I worked for the Democratic National Committee in 1972. And My views have mostly not changed that much over the years. What has changed is the party itself has changed. And certainly, President Reagan was able to reach out and bring people like me into the party. And Donald Trump essentially pushed people like me out. So I think it's going to be hard for the Democrats if they continue to go down this sort of woke agenda that they have, which I don't think is that popular with their Black and Latino colleagues. I think it is much more popular, as I say, on the Upper West Side than it is in
0: Black and Latino neighborhoods. Damon, Linda says that the party can't pursue its sort of woke agenda. But people might say, look, the uh, Biden administration, though it has some left-wing members, but the Biden administration has not been woke. It's been pretty conventionally centrist Democrat and its policies that it's enacted. I mean, not all of them, but some of them have been quite liberal, like the uh, student loan thing. But for the most part, you know, the infrastructure bill and uh, all of that, and even the climate bill, which is misnamed the Inflation Reduction Act, it's pretty conventional stuff.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, there are a few caveats I'd want to make. The big ticket, big programs that the Biden administration has pushed and you just listed them, don't really map on to woke, non-woke. They're kind of standard center left policy initiatives. And in that sense, they don't trigger these problems. And that's great. It's good for the administration and at least notionally positive for Biden or whoever else ends up running their prospects in 2024. There are these exceptions, though. One of them is the administrations and this goes all the way to the top to any time Biden addresses the issue dealing with trans issues and transitioning for minors kids where the administration has staked out position to the left now of a great part of Western Europe, which is not what you would necessarily have anticipated from Joe Biden, given his age and his general stance on social issues throughout his career. So that, I think, is a function of the structural reason why these things have so much play among the Democrats. It has to do with both the shape of the coalition, but also just the way that Different elements in that coalition interact with political power, the role of young, highly educated, college-degreed people in the staffs of the White House and in Congress. So, the people who are most inclined to stake out kind of further left positions on something like trans issues end up in positions to help shape messaging in ways. And then There are other issues that Matt Iglesias writes about a lot in his substack about the way that when people in kind of political jobs in like the White House, when they see what they're having Biden say, or if Biden himself wants to say it, and then they think of taking a more moderate line, they realize, well, the standards by the trans activists for being considered an ally are extremely high. And so if we fall short of those expectations, what we're going to end up doing is kind of provoking them to attack us, and we'd rather not have to endure that. So we'll just sort of continue holding our current position, which is, I think, frankly, pretty intellectually untenable and medically untenable. But in the scheme of what the Biden administration is doing and what the federal government does, trans issues is pretty marginal. So all of that, by way of saying, I largely agree with you, Mona, that the Biden administration is doing pretty much what I think probably you and I and the others on this program hoped we would see, which is despite some early moves that seem to be trying to placate progressives in the House a little bit too much, um, Kind of doing straight down the line center left technocratic type policy making that uh, on the whole is pretty good and cuts against the worries of, of the Tom Edsel piece that we we started with in this segment
0: let me um put a little asterisk there and say I actually don't like center left policies I like center right policies, and so if I had my way, you know the agenda would look very different, but I'm a realist, and I understand that with the Republican Party currently having lost its mind, that this is where I wind up with whatever grumbles.
2: I only meant that given what might have happened with a Democrat winning in 2020, uh, we're getting pretty much the best that a
0: former Republican could hope for. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, David Rui Teixeira, who's been a guest on this podcast, has made the point several times that one mistake he thinks that Democrats make is what he calls the Fox News fallacy, saying, look, that if something is being trumpeted on Fox News, say the problems at the border or trans issues or crime or other things, uh, that there's a tendency on the part of Democrats to say, Therefore, it's a non-issue. It's something we don't have to address because it's astroturf, it's made up, and he believes that they are falling into error. What's your view about that?
1: There's another fallacy that I have in mind as I think about what we've been saying here that I think is equal and opposite. So I don't have diabetes. I don't imagine anybody on this panel has diabetes. I think I know one or two people with diabetes, but not very many because you know I, I live in my bubble of people who are, have you know, moderate health and moderate weight. On the other hand, I think all of us have opinions on trans issues. So, of course, we're going to spend a lot more time discussing trans issues than we're going to discuss that the Biden administration just capped the price of insulin for people who are on Medicare. But, you know, out there in America, <laughs> I have a feeling that the cap on insulin for people on Medicare is a big deal. And one of the fallacies that I think can happen among those of us who discuss politics a lot is that we are just so protected from the kinds of worries that so many Americans have that we lose sight of what is important to them and what is not. So you will listen to on the online discussion. It's all about these woke issues, by which is usually meant some combination of crime and trans. And the crime thing is really a big deal. That is an authentic big deal. The trans issue, and I, I have very conservative views on that and have a lot of skepticism about the whole project, but it is kind of a boutique issue. And meanwhile, I think that we're setting up to have a big debate in 2024 on the question, well, if insulin is capped for people on Medicare, why can't it be capped for people not on Medicare? And if I were the Biden people, I would be, that's the ballot question I want, capped on insulin for everyone who's not on Medicare. And the Biden people have a lot of room to use bread and butter issues. Now, they have a great vulnerability, which is they have a candidate problem. Biden did better among men than any Democrat since Bill Clinton in 1996. That is probably the single most important reason why he became the president. And the question is if he is, for one reason or another, unable to run or unable to run effectively in 2024, is there any other Democrat who can come even close to matching that performance among men? And it's not just white men, it's all men. And if not, is there any plan to make up the gains that Biden made among men with some other group? And the arithmetic on that doesn't look very promising. And so they have this problem that if Biden can't run, The next successors all look like people who will repeat a coalition that looks much more like the Hillary Clinton-Barack Obama coalition and less like the Biden coalition and will not be able to use issues like the price of insulin as effectively as Biden did and could.
0: He also won non-college graduates. He pulled some of them away from Trump. And that was also a significant thing because the trend of late has been, for this huge educational bifurcation in parties, you know, the college graduates trending Democrat and non college trending Republican. So, yeah, that's a big problem. All right. Well, we will, of course, be discussing this continuously over the next uh, year and longer. But for now, we will turn to our final segment, which is our highlight or lowlight of the week. And I will begin with Linda Chavez.
3: Well, I have a very nice highlight to point up. It's an article, actually, that appeared uh, in the Washington Post. It refers to something that took place in David's country of birth, which is Canada. In Canada, the parliament voted unanimously to accept 10,000 Uyghur refugees. And of course, the Uyghurs are a minority in China that is terribly persecuted, hundreds of thousands of whom have been put in what can only be described as concentration camps or re-education camps. 10,000 isn't a whole lot. And these are, by the way, not Uyghur refugees who are actually in China who will apply, but they're Uyghurs who fled China and living in third countries. What is so encouraging about it is that this was a unanimous vote. I mean, can you imagine any comparable thing taking place in the United States House of Representatives uh, or the Senate, much less both of them, that you could actually get every single member of Congress to vote together to do something that had such a humanitarian impact? So I think we ought to be looking to the North uh, for some guidance in the way to deal with some problems, particularly when it comes to humanitarian issues.
0: Thank you for that. And if I remember correctly, and David from you can remind me, I'm sure you know, but well, first of all, the Canadians have been incredibly welcoming to refugees and they threw open their doors to Hong Kong people in 1999 when there was a huge exodus of people after sovereignty was turned over from the UK to China.
1: And so it has been through so many tumults. One of my He's now deceased, but a very close friend in Canada who was a, a refugee from the 1956 Hungarian uprising. And he tells the story about as they realized they were going to lose a massive line forming outside the US embassy. And he just had the thought, I wonder if there's a line at the Canadian embassy. And he <laughs> ran around the corner, wow. a much shorter line, and got himself on the next plane to Canada. Wow. Um, beginning of a remarkable literary life. Yeah, fantastic. I have a highlight for you, Good. which is. That the mortgage rate dipped last week, the lowest rate in five months. And one of the things that I think everyone has been anguishing over and so much turns on this, both economically and politically, is what is happening to the U.S. housing market and will the Federal Reserve succeed in getting inflation off the boil without a recession? I've compared their task to that mini golf hole where you have to sink the ball through that tiny little hole in the base of the windmill without getting whacked (laughs) by any of the pulling blades. (laughs) very tricky shot. Yeah. And if Jerome Powell looks like a man not to play mini golf against, because it does look as if we are going to bring inflation out of crisis without a recession. And this news from the mortgage market is incredibly reassuring. And that means more jobs and uh, for more people and more housing and avoidance of a lot of economic hardship. It also means that I think that you've got a Republican world that in the absence of recession is going to have to run on bizarre boutique culture issues of a kind that are going to be very powerful to people who watch a lot of cable news, but to the great majority who don't watch a lot of cable news, utterly meaningless.
0: Boy, I am so glad you mentioned that because I've been watching that and thinking, I don't have enough confidence in my knowledge of economics. And all of these brilliant people are saying, no, it's impossible to have a soft landing. It's a unicorn. It never happens. And you've said it's extremely difficult, but so many of the signs seem to be pointing toward it. So I mention it with my fingers and toes crossed. (laughs) Okay, Damon Linker.
2: This is one of these times when I go totally off the news cycle with my highlight of the week, and that's good because really we should all be reminded that politics isn't everything. It's not only off the news cycle for politics, but it's also something that's a little old. This is from an issue of The New Yorker, from December 19th, so I'm going back about six weeks here, but it's a fabulous essay and is just as valuable now as it was when it first ran. I only just got to it. It's a very long review essay of Cormac McCarthy's two new novels. So the essay is titled, Cormac McCarthy Peers into the Abyss. It's by James Wood, who is easily my favorite literary critic. I think the best one of the last couple of decades. He doesn't write as much as he used to when he was at the New Republic and when he first got to the New Yorker. But when he does show up, it's always a treat. And this is a really, really great essay. Whether or not you're a fan of McCarthy's work, I really do Recommend the essay as a deep meditation on literature, mathematics, science, and McCarthy's history and the way he writes. The two novels of McCarthy's, by the way, are titled The Passenger and Stella Maris. So he actually has published two novels simultaneously. And this is an essay about both of them. So I recommend that to our listeners.
0: Thank you very much. All right. I would like to take note of the fact. That last week, the police in California released the video of the brutal hammer attack on Paul Pelosi. And the perpetrator of that attack gave an interview to a local Fox affiliate, fully taking credit for it in a very sinister way, saying that he apologizes, he did wrong, namely, he didn't get more of them, etc. Now, The point here is not to condemn that guy because he's obviously a horrible psychopathic character. But it is to note, as the New York Times helpfully did in a reminder of all of the people in the GOP and in the infotainment wing of conservatism, Inc. who joined in celebrating this attack on Pelosi. And that includes Charlie Kirk. Carrie Lake, Glenn Youngkin, Larry Elder, Representative Clay Higgins, Tucker Carlson, Ted Cruz, Elon Musk, Devin Nunez, Sebastian Gorka, and the list goes on and on. What is wrong with these people? This is grotesque venality, cruelty, thuggishness, does not belong in a civilized society. And people on Twitter, who are constantly asking me whether I'm going to return to being a good conservative after Trump leaves the scene or is no longer a factor. My answer is if that's what conservatism is now, I'll never be that. So that's my little rant for the day. All right. I would like to thank our guest, David from, I want to thank our, Sound engineer, Joe Armstrong, our producer, Katie Cooper, our regulars, and hopefully next week, Bill Galston will return. Of course, I want to thank all of our wonderful listeners. Please rate and review us and spread the word. I know you love the podcast because you keep sending me these lovely notes, which I too appreciate. Try to answer as many as I can, but it would be even better if you would go online, wherever you listen, and put up a rating, put up a review and get other people to be able to join as well and with that we will return next week as every week